Let's remain standing for the reading of Scripture. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because you were not, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we didn't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not get get weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him, though, as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Father, we come before you today, and we're thankful for the living word of God. It is something that we believe um, clearly here that this is a word which is unique. It is a word that has been given to us by you through the Holy Spirit. And it is a word in which we need to learn to submit our lives to, that we need faith to understand, that we need to come alive to it in order to make sense of it. It's pretty plain sometimes, Father, but sometimes there are difficult texts that we have to work our way through. I pray this morning you'll give us supple minds. I pray that you'll help us to think clearly and think well. I pray that our our hearts will engage and embrace the reality behind these words that you have written and that our wills would be determined to obey them or change our own behaviors or attitudes if necessary. Thank you that you are a rational, reasonable God. Thank you that we don't leave our brains at the door when we come to gather with your people or when we approach your word, but just that you are incredibly brilliant and wise and powerful and set this whole world in its place. We are made in your image. So help us to reflect that image as we approach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I read from Second Thessalonians chapter 3 as we uh, have been working our way through this book uh, amongst the people of God here. And uh, I'm glad that you persist with us as we do this. And uh, we're a couple weeks, and then hopefully we will be um, finished this book. One of the themes, or the theme that Paul, uh, that is uppermost in Paul's mind as he is uh, writing to these Thessalonians, at least here in this particular text, is work. And uh, work is something I think we need to reflect on and we need to work through from time to time and be reminded of it. There's really two general views of work. There's a secular view of work, and then there's a biblical view of work. And I want to just um, help us think through that a little bit. One book that I was reading uh, this past week on uh, the nature of work and our relationship to it, there was this sentence in there which I, I thought was helpful. He said, everyone is driven in the present by an expectation in the future. According to the spirit of the age, we came from nowhere and we are going nowhere but in between, we can make something of ourselves. And I think then that reflects the attitude that many have in the world to work. Uh, there are, uh, I've heard it said that North Americans live to work, that we have this strong work ethic and that's all we wanna do is work. 
uh, is flipped around when you think of uh, European culture in the sense that they work to live. They, they work in order to uh, facilitate a certain lifestyle and a certain way of approaching the world in which we live. Years ago, there was a saying that uh, some of you would be familiar with, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's an approach to work. That's a realization. Will I die or I'm born and I die, but what, what will I do in between? Well, I will accumulate. I will amass. Um, some people work in order to get recognition. Uh, it's a, 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 it's a, a mark of pride that I do this or I've accomplished that or I've built this or I've created that. Um, uh, and so that's what motivates some, uh, some people to work. For others, it's a means to an end. Uh, and there's a various number of ends in which people work. Um, some work so that they can go on holidays. Some work so that they can retire. Some work so that they don't have to go home. Um, there's all sorts of different means, uh, and it's interesting and helpful if you answer that question yourself. Uh, some of you are not working any longer, but why did I work, you might say, or why do I work? It's important to ask that. So that's sort of one a secular view of putting work into that context. But then this fellow went on, he says, Christians are diff- driven by a different story. Our origins are extraordinarily noble but we rebelled against this dependent glory. He's referring to creation, of course, that we were created in the image of God, and we rejected that. But the view behind that is that, that work then is a way to use the gifts and the talities that our creator has given us. We have a responsibility to use these things to glorify God. It's a view that work is a means to service. I don't just work so that I can accumulate for myself or I can serve myself or I can uh, do things for myself. I work so that I can help those around me. I can help humankind. In fact, the Bible says there's two main commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so one of the reasons that we work as children of God is so that we can help those around us who are in need at a particular time. Work is a way in which we imitate God. It's also a way in which we serve Christ. And so there's two different sort of perspectives on work. As we come to this text, which I, I read this morning, I, I want to do something just a little bit different um, because you might have read it and said, well, what's the big deal? Like Paul mentions work uh, uh, four or five times in this particular text. And he said, well, what's, what's the big deal? Why is, he, why is he putting his finger on something that, is, that in, in such a difficult way in this text? It's really just as a localized issue and it's not our problem uh, in the world in which we live. Well, let me just introduce a little bit of how Paul has gotten to this point in Second um, Thessalonians chapter 3. First of all, Paul is addressing a particular group within the church. These are Christian brothers and sisters. In verse 6, he refers to them uh, in the same way that he does in verse 7 and verse 11 as idlers. Uh, It might be best to call them rebellious idlers, lazy people, people who are refusing to work. We go back into uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse uh, 14, and it's the same word that's used there where Paul says to them, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Don't let them get away with being lazy. They need to work. And so he's going to take us through that a little bit. And so as he's, uh, this is a people that he's addressing in this text, people that are rebellious, that are out of line with the norm of working, um, those that are refusing to work, and specifically they are Christian brothers and sisters. Why are they refusing to work? 
You can read a number of different places and you'll find all kinds of reasons given of why they're refusing to work. Some would say, well, it's this Jewish sort of split between secular and, or secular, secular and sacred. And uh, somehow that if you were in some kind of um, uh, sacred work, your work was more valuable. Uh, we still have that sometimes. Um, you know, people have these uh, sort of opinions that, well, you know, to be a pastor is the best job ever. <laughs> I'll trade you. <laughs> it is a wonderful calling, but you, you can't separate and distinguish between the two. Work is work. There is no sacred, secular split with work. But some are wondering, well, that's what they were doing. They, they would rather sit and study the scriptures. They would rather talk about the scriptures. They would rather go to Bible studies and that kind of thing. And, and so that's why they were working. Some say, well, no, it's the Gentile culture back there. And the Gentile culture had to disdain for manual labor. They, they just didn't want to work. And that's why there was uh, millions of slaves back in those days, because they just refused to do manual labor on their own. And so they enslaved people to do work on their behalf. Some people suggest that the reason that they're not working here is because they're expecting the Lord to come back soon. And so they're just sitting um, on their duffs and saying, well, if Jesus Christ is coming soon, and Paul talks about that for a, a length of time here, if Jesus Christ is coming back soon, then there's no point in me working. Uh, I remember a conversation that I have, I, I, it's a long time ago, I don't think it was with anybody here, but um, we were talking about the second coming and they were just talking about the, num uh, the, the amount of debt they were accumulating. Uh, I think I made a comment about that. Um, well, that's a lot of debt. You, you know, why would you put that? In? Well, their view was, well, Christ is coming back and then our debts will be erased so it doesn't matter. Uh, no, that's, that's not why you take out debt. But it might've been this group of people thought, well, Christ is coming back, so no sense in working. I'll just get a job and he'll come back and that was a waste of time. The fascinating thing about all of this here is Paul doesn't tell us why. There's, he doesn't tell us anything in this text. You can't find anything in the book. So all of that is speculation, which I just wasted three minutes of your time by talking about the speculation. But it's all speculation. Paul just doesn't tell us. And I think that's very helpful because Paul doesn't want to give any one of us an excuse to not examine why we work or why we don't work. It's something that, is, something that all of us have to think about, have to work through, uh, and have to put through a biblical grid. There's a pro progression, too, in what Paul is saying here, which I think is helpful for us to understand. Initially, um, when Paul first went to them, and you can read of this in Acts chapter 17, Paul went to them and he was among them. It says that he talked amongst them for three Sabbath days and he, he lived with them and he, he, he worked amongst them. And as he was there, he was beginning to notice that maybe there was a problem that their view of work was a little bit skewed. And so we can tell that he talked to them about work at various times and in various ways. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, it says that when we were there, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So there must have been a time of instruction where Paul, when he first got there, he noticed this. He said, okay, we just need to instruct you about this. We need to remind you about this. We need to show you the importance of, of why work matters. Then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, it says there that uh, uh, we, uh, we, who, uh, we, in a, um, 
we warn you to keep away from any brother who is walking in idolists and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Again, the tradition that you receive from us. Paul had obviously been talking to them about work and tradition means the, the scriptural tradition behind work, not just Paul's view of work. And then in verse 10, we read there for, he says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So this was Paul's initial instruction to the church. He recognized the problem. And he said, okay, we need to talk about this. And he gave them instruction on the biblical view of work. Well, clearly though, things had not changed because when we come to uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he is now writing them, reminding them of what he had told them about work. And he's reminding them of the importance of work. So it's gone from instruction now to admonishment. Things hadn't changed. And so when we get to chapter three, about three months later now, after uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, he's saying, okay, we've got a real problem. And if this persists, it requires discipline. There's a progression here. There's a concern that Paul has with this group of people. It's fascinating if you read this, reread this yourself, you will notice that five times he commands them. It's not an option to work. This is part of our Christian responsibility to work. And so five times in that few verses from 6 to 15, he commands them to work. If you um, look through the Greek language, there's a couple of words that have a military tone to them. We order you, we command you to get in line. This is, a, this is an important thing that Paul is dealing with um, uh, as it relates to them. And you can see the significance of it because he says, listen, if you're gonna persist, then we're gonna ask the church or I'm gonna encourage the church or tell the church that they need to stay away from you. They need to not have fellowship with you. So you might say, well, wow, isn't that, isn't that a little bit overboard? Like, isn't Paul just pushing this just a little bit too far? And, and maybe that was just for the church in Thessalonica. Like, it doesn't really apply to churches across the board or to Christian people across the board. Why is this such a big deal, we might say? Well, I want to take us through some scripture today. We probably won't get back to the text um, directly. We will next week when we come back to it. But why is this such a big deal? Why does Paul talk to them about rebellious laziness, rebellious idlers? Well, as we'll see, it disregards scripture. Work is a command of God. It's a mandate that God put in before the fall in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. And it's God's example to us as our father and as our creator that we work. We realize that our own laziness, our idleness impacts those around us. It impacts their resources. It impacts their time. It means that we can't look after ourselves, but we also can't look after others. And so as we work our way through this, um, we will find that there's a lot to say in the Bible about work. Part of my thinking of this was stimulated probably two months ago. I just took some days off to get ready for the, the new year. And I hope to preach through Genesis 1 to 11 in January. And as I was just studying and reading that uh, material, it, it struck me the emphasis on work uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. And then, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, when... Uh, sin comes into the world. And so I've been thinking about this for a little bit of time. There's extremes to work, isn't there? On the one hand, you can have those who are workaholics, and that's all they do. 
and that's all they can do, and that's all they want to do. And then on the other hand, you have those who are just extraordinarily lazy, and they won't do anything. And then in between, there's a whole lot of instruction and help that we need to think about. I think you've seen some of the, the bumper stickers on cars, I'd rather be, and then you can fill it in. Uh, I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, hard work may not kill me, but why take the chance? <laughs> Which I thought, ah, that's, that's pretty creative. Uh, and then this one, work fascinates me. I can sit and watch it for hours. <laughs> um, so there, there's just a lot of different views about work that, that I, I think the Bible would challenge or would correct or would change. So I want to just go through a, a few places in Scripture and pull out some of these texts. Um, Proverbs. I'm only going to deal with a few texts from here, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the references so that you can work your way through them on your own later. But Proverbs 18.9. Whoever is slack in his work, whoever is lazy, is a brother to him who destroys. That's really strong language. To be lazy, to be an idler, is to be destructive. Uh, You need to work that through. Um, Why is it destructive? Um, I'll leave that for you to think through. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 13 to 16. The sluggard says, which is a lazy person, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the road. Do you understand what that is intending, right? He's making an excuse not to go to work. There's a lion in the road. I'm not going outside. And so the sluggard is always making excuses of why they don't have to work or shouldn't have to work. And then this, this is such a visual um, phrase. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. He's attached to his bed. That's what I was like when I was 15 years old. (laughs) Kind of hinged to my bed. But that's a lazy person. In other words, they just want to sleep all the time. They never want to get up and work. Since the sluggard buries his hand in a dish, it wears him out to bring it to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And then we go to Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 to 34. And one of the things about the book of Proverbs, which I think is helpful, is Proverbs looks at nature and we learn lessons from nature, which is for me another reason why there is divine design in creation. Creation just didn't come from nothing. Creation is meant to teach us and instruct us because it has been created by a wise, all-knowing, purposeful God. And so he will say there, I passed by the field of a sluggard, Proverbs 24, 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns and the ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And then that's not what he said. He says, then I saw and I considered it. I looked and received instruction. That's really important, isn't it? He says, I looked at this thing and I just worked it through a little bit in my head. I didn't just ignore it. I said, there's something here that I need to think through. There's something about this that I need to learn. And this is what he concluded. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words, what he says is that laziness will catch up with you in a hurry. Oh, I'll fix that wall tomorrow. Oh, I'll weed, weed, weed that line of vines the next day. Ah, oh, I'll plant this, you know, down the road. And then before you're down the road, and the next thing you know, you've got nothing. 
And then one more, Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Again, notice the instruction that's in nature. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Go to the ant. Observe an ant. Watch an ant. You think, an ant? Consider her ways and be wise. Again, see, nature teaches us things. It reveals God, right? Nature reveals the invisible attributes of God. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. That's a pretty smart ant. Doesn't need anybody to tell it what to do. It just does what it's created to do. It goes out and it gathers food and it stores it so that when the winter comes, it's got something to eat. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So, this, I think, is part of what's in Paul's head. He was a student of scriptures. And he's reflecting on the wisdom literature. He realized the dangers of idleness. He realized the dangers of rebellious idleness. And so that's part of what is informing the urgency of his admonishment of these believers. Then we go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a, an amazing book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of one who doesn't believe in God. Or it's written from the perspective of one who lives as though there isn't God. It's a, it's a book that's often been described as uh, written by a practical atheist. One who practically lives as though there is no God. What does it look like to live as though there is no God? We'll read the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about a lot of things. One of the wonderful things, though, is that every once in a while, there's a, a little bit of reference to God, which brings perspective back. So here's some difficult questions. Some of them are repetitive, but this is one of the questions that the writer of Ecclesiastes, what does a man gain by all the toil or work at which he toils under the sun? That's a rhetorical question. It's meant for you and I to think that through. So what do I gain from working all day long? What do I gain from working at home? What do I gain from doing what my mom and dad asked me? What do I gain from all of this work? What's the point in all of this work? Is it simply a means to end? Is it a means to a lifestyle? Is it a means to finance pleasure? But why am I working? It's a good question to ask. Another place he says, what does a man, or what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun. Is work worth the effort? Think that through. Work it through a little bit in your heads and your hearts. Ecclesiastes 5.16. This too is a sickening tragedy. That's fascinating. That's strong language. This is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so will he go. So what does one gain who struggles for the wind? It's a, it's, a, it's a good way to think this through. I came into the world with nothing. I'm not going to leave with nothing. It's never happened to anybody. I can store it in a pyramid, but soon enough, somebody's going to crack my pyramid and steal all my stuff. So why am I working? What do I gain from all this hard work? It's a sickening tragedy that I'm born with nothing and I die with nothing. So why am I working so hard? in the middle. 
then he comes up with some difficult, difficult conclusions, I think. In Ecclesiastes 2.11, for instance, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's concluded that. It, it's, there's a meaninglessness to it in the big picture. Oh, yeah, I've had a few pleasures and I've enjoyed this, but ultimately, uh, there's a meaningless to it. What do I have to show for my hard work when I'm dead? This is fascinating. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. Why? Seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all that for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. You got to leave it all that you've worked hard for, all that you've sacrificed for, maybe all that you've built up so that you, you hope to enjoy it, but you've never had the opportunity to enjoy it, and then you die, and somebody else gets it all. And you have no control how they spend it, what they do with it. He says there's a, there's, there's a meaningless uh, to that. Ecclesiastes 2.23, I'm, I'm missing a, a bunch of these, but... For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. In other words, there's never a time to just sit and enjoy my work. I work hard all day. I go home and all I'm thinking about is what I have to do the next day. I don't get a good night's sleep. I don't get a good rest. It's just work, 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 work. Is that what God intends for us? Ecclesiastes 5, 14 to 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing from this toil which he, that he may carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there from he who toils from the wind? Death interrupts work. Death takes away all that I've toiled for. And then one more, Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. It's not just referring only to food. It's just the things that we work for. There's always something more to work for. There's always something bigger. There's always something better. Um, So we begin to get this context, I think, of what Paul is talking to the Thessalonian Christians about. He's warning them probably with Proverbs in mind and the dangers of laziness. He's thinking about the context of our work. And if you just live as though there is no God and your work is meaningless and that's your view about it, then, then that's not helpful either. But the writer to Ecclesiastes found at least a hint of a way forward. And it's this, to find meaning and enjoyment and purpose from work is a gift of God. That's why the title of the message was Work, a Gift of God to Humankind. You cannot find purpose and meaning in work outside of God. 
And I think that's what he's, Paul has got in his head as he's writing to these, uh, these, these, these believers in Thessalonica. So it's not just a localized issue. It's for every single one of us that, that meaning in our work comes from our relationship with God and our understanding of how God created us to work. And so in Ecclesiastes 2.24, it says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. That's just, that's such an extraordinary revelation. The ability to enjoy what you have worked so hard for, whether day by day or accumulated, is a gift from God. In Ecclesiastes 3.13, he says, it's also a gift from God whenever anyone eats or drinks and enjoys all his efforts. And then Ecclesiastes 5.19, everyone, anyone who is able or everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. Ultimately, the ability to enjoy the product and the produce and the accumulation of what you have worked hard for is a gift of God. We, don't, we shouldn't take it for granted. There's a lot of people who have a lot of stuff and they're miserable. It's a gift from God. So again, work is... Not a necessary evil. I hope we'll come to understand this. Rather, Scripture says that a human life without work could not be a complete life. It would be an existence quite unworthy of human beings. This is what Paul is getting at. Work gives us meaning. Work gives meaning to our life. Work gives context to our life. Work itself, wrote um, Bruce Waltke, is a blessing from a working God. It's not a curse. Work is a blessing. So you might think, how is work a gift from God? I hope you have time to think that through. How is work a gift from God? Well, work is a gift from God because it glorifies God because through it, we use our gifts and abilities that God has given us. And so it's an incredible gift from God because the, the mind that he's given me, the, the hands that he's given me, the feet that he's given me, the, the, the imagination that he's given me, it glorifies God as I use those in my work. Work reflects our being made in the image of God. We'll see that in a moment. We are made in the image of God. Every man and woman, boy and girl, is made in the image of God. God is a working God and therefore work reflects the image of God in us. Work is a gift from God because it allows us to become independent. And I don't mean that in a sinful way, but it helps us to be independent. And more than that, it helps us also to have something to help other people with. That's a wonderful joy of work. Work isn't just for myself. It's just not so that I accumulate for myself. It's just not so that I can have a big nest egg for myself. Work is intended to give me resources to help those who are in need at a time or those who can't work because of a certain circumstance in their life. And so work glorifies God in that sense that it gives me um, the, the means to help and serve those who happen to be in need. Work keeps us from all kinds of dangers. You can get in so much trouble by being lazy. And you can cause so much trouble by being lazy. And so work is a gift of God to keep us out of trouble. Uh, work is a, certainly a command of God. 
It's, it's important that we understand this. This is, again, what Paul is, this is why I want to do this, because I, I want us to understand that what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 3 is not trivial. There's this whole biblical context that is filling Paul's heart and mind as he's writing that. So work is a command of God. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourners who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Not all work we understand is for pay, we can do real work without pay. Um, God has created us for good works before the foundation of the world. Um, but our work pattern is the creational pattern. We model God. Genesis 1 and 2 says, in six days God created the, he did the work of creation. He created the world. And on the seventh day he rested. He said, that is our model. That we are to work that there is to be this component of our life that is comprised of working as our heavenly father, as our creator works. But it can't be all work, and so God also gave us this gift of rest. And mercifully, God gives us this gift of rest because it protects us from thinking that work is the sum total of our life. It's not. It is certainly an important part of our life, and it's a divinely created part of our life, but it's not the sum total of our life. And so... God expects us to pattern our lives after what he himself has done in creation. As I said, God models work for us. He models it in the work of creation. Six days he created the world and seven days he rested. It wasn't a rest of exhaustion. It was a, it was a rest of just enjoyment as he and the son and the spirit probably sat back and just marveled at the wonder and the beauty of the world that they had made together. But God now still works. Um, Jesus says in John 5, 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Our heavenly father is a working father. Our God is a working God. And therefore we are to be will working sons and daughters of God. How is God still working? Well, he's still working in redemption. He's still calling people around the world to himself. And, and as we go out with the gospel message, God draws and calls people to himself. He's still working on me. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the revelation of Christ. I'm glad that God is still working. Otherwise, I'd be done with. And I'm sure he sometimes looks at me and says, man, I've had it with that guy. Too much work but he's still working in redemption, both in saving people and in perfecting them. He's still working in maintaining and preserving the world in which we live. God isn't just sitting back now and just sort of uh, sitting in some big heavenly armchair and watching the world unfold. No, God is intimately involved in the providential governing and preservation and sustenance of this world. He's guarding it. He's protecting it. He's guiding it. He's directing it. He will bring it to its perfect conclusion. God is working in so many different ways. He's working in building the church. That's hard work. But he's working at building the church. 
Work is a creational mandate. I think it's helpful for us to, re, to reflect a little bit on this. That believing the biblical account of creation means believing that work is integral to the meaning and fulfillment of human life. By that, what we're saying is that before sin ever entered the world, when God first made the world, work was part of that world. It's important for us to work that through and to think that through. Work isn't the result of sin. Work was affected by sin, but work is not the result of sin. Work was part of the creational mandate that God gave to humankind. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, it talks there about how we were created in the image of God. And then there's five directives, five commands that, that God says as he talks to, uh, as, as, he, as he mentions this, he says that he created man in his image, in the image of God, he created male and female. And then he says, be fruitful, Command one, increase. Command two, fill the earth. Uh, Command three, subdue it. Command four, and rule it. Command five. This notion of subduing and ruling is work. That's the work that God has called us to do, is to manage this world in which we live. If you are a human being, this cultural mandate applies to you. It's a large reason why God has placed you on this planet to subdue the world, to rule over it. We do that through our work, whether it's cleaning our rooms, whether it's tending our gardens, whether it's drawing the drawings as an architect, whether it's performing a surgery, whether it's putting somebody's plumbing in, whether it's looking after our home and all our kids in the home, whatever it might be. Part of that is what it means to subdue and to rule in this world. Work is a vocation that enables a person to fulfill a calling of service to others and to God. It's fascinating that the word work in the Old Testament has sort of a dual meaning. One of them is the, 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 the root word to serve is also the same root of the word to work. So work is a means by which we serve others. But it's also a, a word which means to worship. So did you see that? Our work is worship. Worship to who? to God. So when we work, we are worshiping God with our talents, with our abilities, with our gifts, with our minds, with our attitudes. We are worshiping God. The psalmist in Psalm 104 is a beautiful psalm. It describes the creational work of God the intimacy of God is he created so many different aspects of this world. And, and there's this natural flow that as God creates this world, there's this, there's this instinctive response of the world to the creational work of God in the world. And at one point he, he says there, or we, we read of God that at, uh, the earth was satisfied with the fruit of his work. Again, there's the work of God in creation and uh, the result was a satisfied creation because of the work of God. But in uh, verse 14 and 15 of Psalm 104, it says, the writer says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate it. It just flows right into that. The world in which you have made is a world in which you have made man to work. It's just natural. It's just what we do. God has created this world and, and he's put, out, put us in this world to work the world and to work in the world. The psalmist says, man goes, same psalm, man goes out to his work and his labor until the evening. 
as everything in the world is doing what it's supposed to do, so also man goes out to his work. Work reflects the image of God in us. We are made in the image of a working God. It's worship, it's natural, it's instinctive. And I hope you understand when it, we're talking about work here, we're not talking about those who can't work because of some physical ailment. We're not talking about those who can't work because of some infirmity. We're talking about those who can work but won't work. We're talking about those who should work but determine they won't work. Id idlers, lazy people. So finally, and here's where we'll try and quickly bring it to an end. This is Paul's flow of thought, loved ones. This, this, is, this is what's behind, I think, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as he talks about work. So we come to Ephesians chapter 5, or 6, verse 5, and it says there, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched. We have had so much unwatched work in the last two and a half years. How's that been going? Don't work uh, while only by being watched in order to please men. In other words, you know, I'll, I take a 30-minute coffee break when I'm at home, and if, my, if I'm in the office and my boss is around, well, I've got to do 15 minutes. Um, but work as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. So see, Paul is beginning to put work in a Christian context. Serve with a good attitude. I've had an awful attitude sometimes as work, uh, as a worker. Um, God has really helped me over the years, but as a young man, I, I, I don't know why I didn't get fired every day. I won't go into the details. <laughs> but serve the Lord with a good attitude. Or serve with a good attitude as to the Lord, not to men. Do you understand what he's saying? When you work, loved ones... It's your attitude that Christ sees that matters. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will see, receive back from the Lord. In other words, my work has been put in this context of I am working for God. I am serving God. I am worshiping God. And therefore, I need to work hard all the time whatever I'm doing, paid, unpaid, whatever I'm asked to do, my work is a work for my God. I am serving the Lord as I work. One more, Colossians chapter 2, verse 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. I love that, work wholeheartedly. Do you give it your all when you go to work? Did you give it your all when you went to work? Are you giving your all when you go to work? And again, I'm not just talking about work for money. I'm work for your serving. Give it your all. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. I don't know why I've picked on room cleaning. I could pick, up, I, I could pick on picking up clothes because my wife has a nice pile that my clothes just get to. And I know it would please her a lot if I cleaned them up, but it would please God even more. We can't extract our work and our life 
from our relationship with God. Knowing that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Do you know that? That when you work, you may have a boss, you may have a few bosses, but your ultimate boss is Christ. This is why it mattered to Paul. This is why it was important to Paul that he deal with those who thought that he didn't have to work, that they could be idlers, that they could be busybodies, that they could be rebellious, because it went against everything that God has created us to do and to be, to work and to work effectively for the glory of God as those who serve him. May God help us to just work this through a little bit again in our lives. Father, I thank you for your word. And uh, sometimes it's good to just get a broad sweep of the biblical text. And um, we're each responsible, Lord, before you. And that's a good thing. I'm not to hold others account. They're not to hold me account. But uh, there is a sense in which as a Christian community, we are to be a working community. So help us, Father, as we process these things. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.